electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Dominic Chu in for Melissa Lee tonight, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup for the big show, we've got Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Pete Najarian, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, markets in full-on rally mode today, but is it too late to get in on the gains and the action? Friend of the show, Tony Dwyer, joins us to tell us why he thinks it's not a bad time to buy. And later on, investors snapping up shares of Snap Inc. today, as the social media platform gets a big upgrade, we'll find out what makes it stick out in that big social media space. Plus, Pete's got a fast pitch on one medical device maker he says could be a real home run. We'll tell you what it is as he lays out the big case in that medical miracle mystery chart. And in a special bonus hour of Fast Money at 6 p.m. Eastern time, we are taking all your burning trading questions. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. And you might just get them answered live here on the show coming up in the next hour. But we start with that monster rally on Wall Street today. The S&P up more than one and a half percent and the Dow jumping over 400 points, as you can see there. The Nasdaq also up nearly two percent, leading those markets higher. Energy stocks, financials and the small caps as well. Investors appearing hopeful a new deal for stimulus is coming down the pike. But markets are still down significantly for the month. Does today's action give you a reason to perhaps be more optimistic? And for that, perhaps, Guy, I will turn to you first. Dominator, welcome. It's always wonderful to have you on board. We got a bonus hour with you, so that's fantastic. And, you know, I think the answer to your question is yes, but you can't say that in a vacuum. Something we talked about over the last couple of weeks was you're probably going to see a short-term market bottom on a day the market sells off. And the volatility index sells off with it. And you actually saw that over a few days. I know Pete can speak to this. The VIX topped out around 36. And as the market was selling off, the VIX was selling off down to the 25 and a half level. That gave you a pretty good indication that maybe we were going to bottom. I mention that because one of the things we said now for a while off that low that we made a week and a half or two weeks ago, the obvious move at this point was probably a move back to the prior all-time high, of 33.93 that we made back in February. And Steve can speak to this because not only does that make sense for that reason, it also makes sense because it would be a textbook 50% correction of the recent all-time high and the low we made a couple weeks ago. So the answer is yes, but let's see what happens when we get there. And when I say when, because I do think we're going to rally another 40 or so S&P handles. All right. So Steve, let's bring you in because Guy kind of teed it up for you there. Is this a level, is this a market right now, the action that you've seen, that makes you feel as though you're comfortable being long, comfortable putting new money to work right now? So I know everyone wants to have that gut instinct of being positive on the overall market. And this market has shown you nothing but positivity because that gap, Dom, is closing from the corona bottom to when we finally actually restart the economy. But you talked about a couple of levels. 50 percent. I'm sorry, the 50 day moving average. I heard you talking about it today on air. Thirty three fifty three. So we closed right around that level. That's why people are keying in on that level. 
Where did we bounce from? The 100-day moving average, which was 32.10. So this is technically a, a, a great setup to play it for a bounce, but the problem is we still have what the problem was. We have an overbought market. Granted, we worked that off just a little bit, but what has been the most overbought? The tech space, the most bloated names, those six or 10 names that we all focus on. Doesn't mean that other things have not rallied, doesn't mean that uh, other sectors have not rallied, but it's time to take a pause because the market and the economy are two totally different things. A lot of volatility going forward. The biggest thing for me, Dom, month end, quarter end this week. So I heard, uh, I, I heard it was mentioned uh, prior to us on Closing Bell. I still think it's a big deal. I still think people were underweight energy. We had M&A today. I still think people are underweight financials. We saw those rally today. What sold off, what rallied into, into month end, I think that's what you have to keep an eye on. Let's see if it lasts a week or so. Tim Seymour, over the last week, over the last five trading days, I'm looking at our screens here, it says that the big, one of the bigger cloud computing ETFs is up over 3%. Semiconductors, that particular ETF, the ticker SMH, we look at it a lot, is up over 3% right now for five trading days. We also saw financials and energy, to Steve's point, lead the rally today. So those are two different parts of the market, both assuming some kind of leadership role. Does that then mean that there is this kind of all-clear signal if the bad and the good are going up at the same time? Dom, great having you. Um, getting me to say you've got an all-clear signal is something that's tough to do. Um, but I, I, I hear where you are. And if you look at the triple Qs or the NASDAQ 100, you've rallied almost 6% over three sessions. The semis, which they had multiple times over the last couple of years, uh, and certainly coming out of the worst to COVID, have, have certainly been a leader and something to follow. And in fact, they've, they've kind of led the way. So both of these are now uh, back over the 50. Todd Gordon will be here to talk some of the real technicals in a bit. But I, I, you're talking about the broadening of the market and, and to the extent that uh, maybe you're most excited today about the move in retail and in small caps. Uh, and, and, and along with that, with the banks. And if you look at the European banks, uh, we're up over three and a half percent. So these are the parts of the market that I think people want to see. The good news for all investors. So back to at least where you've had an all clear uh, and where I don't think anything has changed is, is uh, the guys have talked about some oversold conditions. I have to agree with that. I think the Nasdaq can, can correct further down. And I, I mentioned kind of those late June, early July levels. But the Fed is still very much your friend. I think the payroll numbers this week are, are going to give you some sense of where the labor market certainly is going to need a lot more fiscal help than just what monetary policy is. Uh, but I think you've got a case where uh, you've at least seen parts of the economy, especially the transports, give you a lot of reason for confidence in terms of leadership. And, and they led you on the way down from 2018 into 2019. And transports have been outperforming the market for the last almost four months now. So many key bellwether-esque type parts of the market that we're watching right now. So I'm going to turn now to Pete Nigerian. I know that you're on the news line with us right now at CNBC. Let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of trading action there. Is there something that makes you feel as though this is a constructive environment or are we due for a little bit more consolidation, perhaps even some more discount pricing in the coming weeks ahead of the election? Well, I certainly could see the consolidation side of it, Dom. I mean, I, I can tell you this also, though. In the derivatives world where I live, uh, i got to tell you something. A lot of bullish activity over recent weeks, and, and it just continues to come, come in. Now, a lot of that's short-term, but today we are seeing 
a little bit longer-term type op- uh, uh, options that we were seeing where they were buying in major indices. So I'm not even just talking specific names or whatever. I'm just talking about in different indices across the board, we were seeing some buying. So it felt like a bit of a bullish tone potentially, but not as much short-term as we had been seeing. So that that makes it a little bit more interesting because it's very easy to sit there in the very short term and see this, this movement that we are seeing, but to commit to buy those kind of premiums that you've got to, to be able to go out to January, maybe December, that says a lot more about what, the, uh, what, what they really are feeling, those very large buyers out there in the marketplace. So volatility, Guy brought this up, and I just have to address this real quick. Volatility was selling off all day. Well, it was, it was going up early. Then it started to sell off. We actually nearly closed on the absolute lows of the session, which was pretty interesting to see how that volatility index was coming down as the market came down from being up 500 down to 400. So a lot of different things going on right now, but certainly there are sectors that I'm impressed with that do lead us a little bit more so out of where we have been recently, like transports, like materials, and a few other names. I I like seeing what we saw in financials today, but that's a one day. We haven't been able to see financials put back-to-back-to-back days together for a very long period of time. So that's something I think we got to watch very, very closely. All right, we did get some back-to-back-to-back days with those financials this time around. We'll see if it sticks around. So that's our first pass at the broader market narrative now. So our next guest says last week's lows may have been an even better time to buy than the March bottom, believe it or not, and investors might still have a chance to get in. Let's have him explain why. This is Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. He joins us now. Welcome, Tony. Always great to have you here. Let's break down your thesis. How could it be at higher prices that it was a better time to buy over the last couple of weeks than those dead lows over there that we saw back in March? I don't know, Don. They got the story wrong. I didn't say that. So, I mean, I, I hate to put it that blunt, but I never <laughs> said that. Last week was a terrific opportunity to buy those lows. We had an opinion in March where we also thought that the, the market had set up for a pretty sharp oversold bounce. But the, I never said that. I, I think that that low last week was better than the March lows. That, that, that's not accurate. All right. So let, let's go then. Let's figure out whether or not this is a good time to buy then. I mean, this is an environment where we're in this kind of no man's land. We've bounced off some recent, very near term bottoms, but we're kind of below the record highs that we've seen. There aren't a lot of positive catalysts yet. We still have the election looming. So why would you even want to get into this market having all of that uncertainty? There's extraordinary positive catalysts. Extraordinary. We have never in the history of our country seen excess liquidity where it is today. We have never had a Federal Reserve chairperson literally say we're printing money and we're keeping rates at zero for years. And even if the economy gets hot, and inflation goes above our average at 2%, we're still going to keep rates at zero. And in addition, when you look at the global economy, you're seeing a synchronized pivot off of the low in growth. It's a really important point where you've got the combination of excess liquidity that can fund growth that is just beginning. Dom, you go into problems in the market when you have um, a lack of liquidity, when you don't know what the economy looks like. That's what was happening. And I think what was referenced um, you know, in the, in the pre-interview is what was happening. What's the difference between buying down 10% now, you know, last week, versus buying down 10% in early March? And the difference is, and why, you know, we had downgraded the market in January. So we were not saying to buy the down 10% back then. The reason is 
You had no idea what COVID-19 was. You had no idea what the Fed was going to do because you had no idea what the economy was going to do. We hadn't made the decision to shut it down yet. Today, we have excessive Fed liquidity. It's unbelievable. Um, we have a global synchronized recovery, and nearly every biotech is thankfully working on a vaccine or treatment. And I think that's really what the March reference is to. What's the difference between the first down 10% then and the first down 10% now? And that's why we wanted to attack last week. Remember, corrections are only natural, normal, and healthy until you actually get one. Right? And then by definition, it feels like something different. So, Tony, it's Steve Grasso. So when you look at it, you just you just mentioned it. We, we've already had, though, excess liquidity. We've had rates at zero and we've had the ability to pop above the Fed's inflation target. So you just said it. We sold off 10 percent with all that. So yeah. are you talking about a max down of 10 percent? I mean, that happened with all the scenario that you had. Do you think that this market is insulated for if nothing else changes for a 10% only sell-off going forward? Given algorithms, I mean, Steve, you're, you're a trader. You know, it would be ridiculous for me to say that. But let me, let me give you some stats. My buddy, I call him my stats dude, Jason Goford at Sentiment Trader. I'll, I'll give you the exact stats that we came up with today as a study we did together. Since 1962, this was only the 10th time the S&P has pivoted off a 30-day low while in an uptrend and then had an 80% upside volume and upside breadth day. The worst case six months later of those prior nine times was one time a loss of minus 0.1% and 11% median gain, six months. One year, you were up each time with a median gain of 16%. So I have no idea, you know, I've proven to the viewers, I'm not the greatest trader in the world. <laughs> On the intermediate term front, I stick with the data. Right. And the data, both on a macroeconomic front and a trading front, suggest, by the way, in this data, it also shows when we did the study, the next two weeks are choppy. This is going to be choppy. It, it should be. All right. Choppy is what we're going to get, I think, all the way into the election and perhaps even beyond there as well. Tony, thanks. Great to get your thoughts, as always. Tony Dwyer over at Canagord, and he is, in fact, constructive on the markets here. We appreciate your thoughts. Thanks, Tom. All right. So, guys, let's trade this. And, Pete, we'll go to you first. Let's trade it. How is Tony's thesis playing in the way that you are attacking the markets these days? Well, you know, it's primarily been for me, obviously, as I was talking earlier about the derivatives markets. But I've been seeing so much interesting activity there, Dom. And that, that's really been something. First of all, our volumes have been off the charts. I mean, we've been talking about this all year, all of 2020. Volumes have been huge. And so because of that, there's an incredible amount of liquidity in the markets right now. And a lot of it had been very, very short term. So I like the fact we're seeing a little bit longer term, but I don't mind trading it and trading that short term. And it do, I do expect it to be bumpy, as Tony was alluding to. So I think there's no doubt about it. You have to be very disciplined in this market right now. You have to have your hands partially in your pockets, ready to, to wait, but then also ready to pounce. And that's exactly the way I feel right now. All right. Sounds very tactical to me. So let's get another take here. Just how much higher can the market run at this point? Let's go off the charts with who else? Todd Gordon at TradingAnalysis.com to find out what he's seeing. Todd, I know that the traders and I, we've all been talking about this battleground that's happening right now. It's that 50-day moving average. Yes, I know the markets are more than just one simple number. But when you have the Dow hovering right around there, 
the S&P 500 and Nasdaq Composite right on top of their 50-day moving averages, it seems as though this is a place where you say, hey, it could go higher or this is resistance and we're due for a pause. What are the charts telling you? Yeah. Hey, Dom, good to see you. Uh, listen, I, I'm bullish. I'm continuing to be bullish. I'm not so much of a moving average guy as, as much as Grasso is. And maybe I can give another stat on top of what Tony just brought in, which I think is interesting. We're on the, on the verge of losing a five-month consecutive gain in the NASDAQ. We've only seen that one other time in history, and that was heading into the COVID sell-off, right? So, so that was the first time in the history of the NASDAQ that we actually saw this. So if we were to close down in September, history would show with this much momentum behind the market, we should continue. So let's take a look at the last 10 years. Uh, there's two situations, November uh, 16 and May two, uh, 2017. We had a little bit of a pause, but then we rallied 37% before we saw a meaningful correction. Before that, it was the March 09 lows. We went for seven months in a row, took a breather, and then we went for another 24%. So again, COVID was the first time that we saw a meaningful decline following a five-month rally. Now, seasonality, let's take a look at this. Um, September, we know, is a seasonally bearish month. Over the last 30 years, the Nasdaq's down an average of only 0.13% in September. But here's the thing, which follows on top of my last stat, October snaps back to be the biggest monthly gainer of 2.74%. So I continue to be overweight tech in my portfolio. I, I, my biggest holdings are XLK, Q's, Apple, and, uh, and Netflix. Um, if we take a look at the S&P and the VIX, uh, I heard all the guys talking a lot about volatility. It's super interesting. Uh, it's, it's important to keep in mind here, uh, if we look at the chart of the S&P before we get into the VIX, we're still in correction mode. The last two corrections from, from the credit crisis low were consolidating patterns, consolidating volatility, higher, like, like coming to a point. This is opposite. We're expanding. We're seeing expansion in VIX, range expansion, and we're actually seeing higher highs and higher lows, which is why it's an incredibly difficult uh, scenario for, for investors, but good for, for traders. So I don't actually think we're, we're through resistance to about 3,500 in the new trend in the S&P to follow it and, and to close it down. IYT is sort of my catch-up uh, sector. I love it. Uh, Air Freight Logistics acting really well. FedEx, UPS already made the move. Uh, Railroad, some of them made the move. Watch CSX through 80 bucks uh, with a nice, uh, like 1.3% uh, dividends. Don't do airlines yet. I think they're still stuck on the tarmac. But uh, look for the IYT up through that 205. I think that's your next catch-up level. All right, a divergence in those transports developing there. Todd Gordon, tradinganalysis.com. Thanks very much for those charts. So let's trade this, guys. Guy Adami, I will go to you first with this. That's a lot of stuff to soak in. What we heard from Tony, what we just heard from Todd. But with all of that in mind, is it changing your calculus at all with how you approach what's happening with the markets? No, I appreciate their points. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, over a five, seven minute conversation, it's hard for me to change what I said five minutes prior to that. But what I will say, and something that Tony mentioned, I think Pete and Tim probably agree with this. There are names that will probably do well into the environment they're talking about. And the Caterpillar, for example, is a name we talked about a few months ago. I think Pete was on that night. The stock was trading around 134. And we said it really sets up well to test that high we saw in January, which was 148. It did that, actually traded north of 155, and here we are at 148 again. So for trading opportunities off exactly what Todd and, and Tony said, a name like Caterpillar for the risk-reward to me really looks interesting. All right, so we've talked about Caterpillar, 
perhaps some of the transportation stocks like FedEx and UPS and maybe not so much the airlines just yet. All right. Thanks, guys. We're coming back to you in just a moment here. Coming up on the show, another twist in the seemingly nonstop M&A drama between LVMH and Tiffany. The bold claim that the French luxury house is making about the company it wanted to buy just a few months ago. And things could get pretty spicy for shares of McCormick. Get it? Spicy McCormick. After its next earnings report, what options traders are expecting from those results? All of that coming up when Fast Money returns after this break. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. LVMH has filed a counter lawsuit against Tiffany. That's just the latest piece of drama going in that ongoing merger dispute between the two luxury brands. Robert Frank joins us now with the latest here. And this is getting to be a pretty bad divorce in a marriage that hasn't even happened yet. That's right, Dominic, is the latest shot fired in what I call the battle of the bling here. LVMH filing a counterclaim against Tiffany in Delaware Chancery Court. Now, this is a response to Tiffany's lawsuit filed earlier this month that sought to force LVMH to proceed with that deal to buy Tiffany for $16 billion. Now, LVMH complained. Now, here's how it starts out. This is the first line. Quote, the business LVMH proposed to acquire in November of 2019 no longer exists. What remains is a mismanaged business with no end to its problems in sight. And it just gets worse from there, Dom. Now, LVMH alleges there was a material adverse effect here. It says that the pandemic created extraordinary damage to Tiffany. And, and this is important, there was no carve-out in the deal agreement for a pandemic. Now, the core of the complaint is really that Tiffany has been mismanaged. It says that Tiffany paid out dividends when it shouldn't have that it cut marketing and SG&A expenses that will actually cost future sales. And it said that luxury companies in the U.S. have a bleak future, saying that 90% of Tiffany's sales are brick-and-mortar stores. You don't want to be that kind of retailer right now. And 80% of those brick-and-mortar stores that Tiffany has are in shopping malls. Now, LVMH also cites a letter from the French foreign minister that says it is impossible to close that transaction. That's what LVMH is saying. And the trial for all of this is set to begin on January 5th, Dom. So we'll see whether a judge gets to hear all this, whether they reach some kind of settlement before, whether they reach a deal at a lower price. A lot's going to happen in the next couple of months before that trial. All right, Robert Frank, thank you very much for that latest update on Tiffany and what's happening with LVMH. So let's toss it out and trade it, guys. Tim Seymour, to you first. Does this change exactly how you feel about either LVMH or Tiffany? I mean, a lot of folks bought it thinking it was going to happen, and then COVID struck, and now here we are with a big corporate divorce for a deal that hasn't even closed yet. I mean, we've got a big sack for blue, uh, for sure, uh, exclaim. And I think what, what this is really about is a discount. <laughs> 
because I, I don't think there's anything in, there's, in, in the LVMH claim that has validity, certainly not around COVID, certainly not around mismanagement. We've gone through this. Karen Feinerman's done a great job. We've talked about uh, the agreement and the restrictions upon uh, and the binding nature of the agreement. And there's, there's nothing. And certainly going on about the, the business and mismanagement and COVID is, is these are not grounds for breaking this up. I think the Jan 5th court date is a deadline that should get you some uh, some decision. And, and I think, you know, the, the only thing that hangs outstanding is whether the letter from the French government was binding or whether it was advice or whatever it was. Um, if you look at Tiffany shares, they've been inching up. They're up about 7% from the uh, the bottom of the announcement of this news. And, and I think that's where you're going to get. I don't think there are other likely there's been, you know, other folks, Richemont, other people thrown into the mix as possible takeover candidates. But I think this deal's going to happen. I think it's going to be very, very difficult for LVMH to get out of it. So, Dom, when you look at Tiffany's, though, you had asked how it makes you feel about it. What, I, I agree with everything that Tim said. I think LVMH is going to have a rough time backing out of the deal. But when you look at those numbers that Robert Frank just said, Tiffany's 90% brick and mortar and 80% of those sales are in malls. That makes me feel extremely negative on Tiffany's. But when you have to think about the broader macro picture, people are looking for premium brands to buy. And there's not that many that are standalone. And I power pitched Capri Holdings. That's the owner of Jimmy Choo and Versace. And oh yeah, throw in Michael Kors that does over about $4 billion in revenues on normalized earnings. So that's the way I would play it. But I do agree with Tim that LVMH is going to have a tough road to hoe to get back out of this deal. Battle of the bling, so says Robert Frank. All right, guys, thank you very much for those thoughts there. And we're just getting that momentum going here on the show. Here's what's coming up next. The U.S. putting the squeeze on China's biggest chip maker. But what will the crackdown mean for the U.S. tech sector? Plus, shares of Snap catching a bid today. But are these gains here to stay? Or are investors about to get ghosted? We'll bring you the call and a lot more when Fast Money returns. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your 
your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. The U.S. cracking down on China's biggest chip maker, SMIC. Eunice Yoon has all of those details. Chinese chip giant SMIC faces an uncertain future with the U.S. tightening export restrictions. On Friday, the Commerce Department warned suppliers in a letter that shipping to SMIC posed an unacceptable risk of being diverted for military end use. Suppliers of certain equipment will now have to apply for individual export licenses. SMIC said in a statement that it had not received official notice from the U.S. and insists that it has no ties to the Chinese military. Investors in Hong Kong and Shanghai are rattled about what the move means for the chip maker, its key customer, telecoms titan Huawei, and Beijing's ambitions to build up its homegrown chip industry. Official paper of the Global Times is calling for China to embark on a long-tech march to counter what it sees as the U.S.'s attempt to hold China back. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. All right, thank you very much, Eunice Yoon, for that. So let's trade it. Guy, we'll go to you for this one here. This is perhaps one of the biggest stories in the marketplace right now, not just because of SMIC, but what it means for the chip industry and U.S.-China relations at large. How do you feel about that kind of tension that we're seeing right now? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. You, you happen to be right in your assertion that it's a huge story. And I've thought, the, you know, this escalation that's been going on with the United States and China basically since last fall was going to continue to escalate. So I was correct about that. What I've been incorrect about is that it would have an adverse effect on the broader market. Your points are absolutely spot on. The market doesn't care because here we are, you know, five, six, seven percent from an all-time high in the S&P 500. I'm not really sure why the market hasn't taken notice. Maybe there are bigger forces at work. Maybe to Tim's point and Tony's point, liquidity trumps everything. But this escalation is not going away. It's going to continue to ramp up. And maybe at a certain point we hit that diminishing marginal returns and the market starts to see it and moves from it. But up until now, there have been not one headline that's come out that it's really affected the market in any meaningful way, Dom. Yeah, Guy, and it's been that way for arguably five or six years at this point now that the market just keeps shaking everything off here. Let's get more on this story, though, because it is big. With Dewardrick McNeil, he's managing director at Longview Global. He previously worked for the Department of Defense in the Obama administration. He's also a CNBC contributor. Welcome back to the show, Dewardrick. Let's talk about just how important from a geopolitical and market perspective it is for this next salvo, this increasing tension between the U.S. and China on the technology front. Thanks for having me, Dom. Listen, I I said last week and I I say again, uh, welcome to the tech war. Uh, Even though semis have been doing well, I think you would be wise to pay attention to increasing geopolitical risk in this sector. Uh, This latest move, uh, Dom, wasn't quite as bad as it could have been. In fact, the Defense Department wanted uh, SMIC to be put on the Commerce's Department uh, Bureau of Industry Securities Entities list. That did not happen, but there will still be restrictions placed on export of items uh, to China, items that the Pentagon fears uh, will ultimately end up in the hands of the Poli- uh, People's Liberation Army or the PLA. 
Uh, as for China, China's already announced that it will take, quote unquote, countermeasures, which is a signal that they will retaliate at some point uh, in the future. I suspect that they will keep their powder dry for now. But, Dom, you'll recall that last week the Chinese announced conditions for something that they call the unfriendly uh, entities list. So they could use this list as a way to strike back at, at the U.S. But I don't suspect it will happen in a symmetrical way, Dom. I don't think that China wants to strike at the semiconductor industry, which they need so much. Dom, they uh, rely on about $300 billion in foreign uh, uh, tech for the semiconductor space. This is an extreme vulnerability for Beijing. They have announced that they will do everything possible to have what they call indigenous production and manufacturing in this space. And I suspect, Dom, in October, uh, when uh, the Chinese uh, meet uh, for a senior level meeting at the end of the month uh, to prepare for their 14th five-year plan, there will be huge announcements about the amount of money that China is prepared to spend to become self-reliant as much as they can in this space. And Dom, just one note, there's about 10,000 or so companies that have decided that they're going to do something in this space to try and take advantage of the money that Beijing is spending to become indigenously independent in this space. We're talking to Wardrick about the two biggest economies in the world by far, and they're battling it out with each other on big fronts like technology, artificial intelligence, 5G, next-gen wireless. Is this the next Cold War? Is this the next Russia versus U.S. from like the 1970s and 80s? Is this going to carry on for the next 20, 30, 40 years? Well, Dom, I hope at some point cooler has prevailed, but I can tell you uh, the tech war, I think, is with us, uh, at least in the near term. I don't see uh, this ending. Uh, neither one of these giants uh, will back down. And I think both of them are big enough that they can, can withstand a punch from one another. So short of a hot war, which no one hopes to see, I think we can expect to see more with respect to a tech war, uh, more respect to trade and a number of other uh, sectors, uh, Dom. This is with us for a while, so companies should be prepared for the geopolitical risk. All right, DeWardrick, always great to have you on the show. Always great to get your thoughts. We appreciate it. All right, so let's you, trade Dom. this, guys. Uh, and, and maybe, Tim, will go to you, not because I'm trying to typecast you, but, but you do have a good amount of experience in these emerging markets. Not that China, as the second biggest economy in the world, should be really characterized as an emerging market anymore, but... Is this something the investors should be fearful about, this increasing tension? Guy's point, and it's valid, it hasn't derailed yeah. anything over the last five, six, seven years. Without question, Dom. And, and I've said this before, that, that, that chips and data are effectively the new oil. I mean, where, where were we 15 years ago? We were fighting over self-sufficiency and, and essentially resources were the global strategic assets that the world was fighting over. It's absolutely technology. So the question is, who, who benefits from this who, and who loses? I mean, if you look at U.S. companies and you know, roughly 50 percent of the input to SMIC are coming from American companies. So uh, AMAT is one of them. Uh, and then on the beneficiary side, look, Taiwan Semi, TSM, is not only the largest uh, company in 
the EM index, or it's become one of the top ones after really not even being in the top 10. But the move in this company uh, to be the white label provider for much of the world continues, and, and they are fine. And, and right now, they'll have the edge here, and I think they will continue to, to press ahead, and I would own this stock. All right. Chip's still in full force here, guys. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, we've got a special hour of Fast Money coming your way at the top of this, uh, this hour. Send us your burning trading questions. We will get you some answers. We're going to try anyway live. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We might just answer your questions live on air. But first, Pete's winding up for a fast pitch. There he is. Get the cap on with the bowl there. It's a medical device maker. He says is about to break out of a months-long rut. We'll see if the other traders are buying what he's selling. Fast Money is back in two minutes. Welcome back to Fast Money. One medical device stock has been stuck in a rut as of late, but Pete Nigerian says a breakout is on the horizon, so he's giving us another fast pitch. So, Pete, we showed him the mystery chart. What's the name? Well, I'm going to give you Medtronic, and I like this name a lot, Dom. As a matter of fact, not too long ago, just in the last two weeks or so, I bought this, this company in terms of the shares. But I really like it for a lot of different reasons. I'll start off with the leadership. When you look at Jeff Martha, who now is running the operation, and he was, he's been at the company a long time, but he was the integration officer when they were going through the Covidian acquisition, $43 billion acquisition that actually has worked out very, very well for the company. Obviously, they have the confidence in him. Now he's running the show there, and I like the moxie. I like the strength that this guy brings to the company. On the fundamental side, this is a company that has incredible free cash flow. I like that, but it's not just a one-time thing. This is a company that for decades has had incredible cash flows. Their margins continue to be very, very strong. When I look at the fundamental side of this company, they are fundamentally strong. So they're they're positioned so well right now, Dom, that I think they really are, from that side of things, they're great. Now, what about growth? Well, when you look at the growth, look at the revenue growth. Over the last five years, they've consistently had about 8% on the revenue growth side. And then on the net income side, 12% growth over the last five years. So there's a lot of reasons to like this company. This is one of those COVID companies as well, because a lot of what was going on from surgery standpoint were surgeries that were elective. Well, that did hurt the company for a while, and now they're coming out of that. So similar to many other names that you don't always think about this name in terms of coming out of the COVID, but certainly right now, I think they're positioned well. I like where they are in terms of a PE. I think it's a fair PE, and they've got the growth. So because of that, I think this is a company that could very easily retest those higher levels they were back in January near $120 a share. All right, so Pete has made his case. Let's open it up to questions from our trader panel. We'll go to you, Steve Grasso, first. Do you have a question for Pete? I do. So, Pete, I'm right along with you. I like this stock as well. What happens if the COVID environment, if we have a relapse again, since that was a major headwind, you just mentioned it as one of your uh, bullets as as a catalyst to the buy side that people were not having the elective surgeries or, quite frankly, not even getting in to see their doctors if it wasn't COVID-related. If we get another uh, level of the COVID virus or a second round, does that make you negative on this bullish call? It doesn't make me negative, Steve, but it does have some concern. And I'm, my, what, what I'm thinking forward right now would be, I think they're much better stocked now than they once were in the hospital area. So because of that, I think that does play into an advantage for 
the surgeries not to be put off as long as they were before. Because as you know, a lot of what, what the reason was for the cancellations was they just didn't have enough in the hospitals to be able to, to, to combat this whole thing. So I do think that even going forward with the return of COVID potential, I think the hospitals are much better prepared right now. All right. Pencils down. No more questions. It's time to vote. So are you buying Pete's pitch on Medtronic? Guillaume, to you first. Well, Pete used the word moxie. The last time I heard moxie was when Kid Twist said you have moxie eerie. Get yourself a suit from the sting. I know Pete knows that. I'm with Pete. Forty three percent EPS growth. The stock is too cheap. I think it takes out those prior all-time highs. All right. We got a yay-yay from Giadami. Tim Seymour, what do you say? Hey, first of all, it's exciting first day with my new whiteboard, my home whiteboard. But I'm a buyer of everything Pete is selling on Medtronics. Bottom line here is that free cash flow generation for this company has been a hallmark. The diversity of their end, essentially their end customers uh, and client base is extraordinary. And I think coming out of COVID uh, or in the middle of COVID, this company is actually very well prepared. Would Pete, you, nice job. Would you mind just putting up that portrait of Pete Najarian up again? Would you, would you mind? <laughs> oh, I mean, because it's pretty oh, yeah. good, right? I mean, he, 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 yeah. I'm just saying. It's not one of my best. I draw Pete whenever I can. It's the first time I've seen him with a whiteboard. So, Pete, uh, I've done better. You're a better looking man than this. All right, Steve Grasso, to you. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, to, to, my, to my buddy Pete, I'm going to go buy as well. And there's about 14 analysts that came out as positive on the stock recently. Average, pr- uh, average price target is 116. That gives you a quick 10% to the upside if it works. All right, a clean sweep. One positive pitch and three agreements here. The traders have spoken. Now it is your turn. Head over to our Twitter handle at CNBC Fast Money and tell us if you are buying Pete's fast pitch on Medtronic. We will reveal the results later on in the show. Plus, snapping up some gains, shares of Snap Inc. ripping higher thanks to an analyst upgrade. We will break down what's got one analyst so bullish on this social media stock. Stick around. More Fast Money is coming up after this. Mark your calendars for this Wednesday, September 30th, when Delivering Alpha returns for its 10th year. Back with us, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, also Steven Schwartzman, Mark Lassery, Mary Erdois, and more. Head over to DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more and to register a huge event. We'll be covering it extensively. I know I myself will be as well. Well, welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Snap surging on an upgrade to buy by analysts over at Guggenheim. Those analysts saying the social stock could jump another 13% from here as advertising becomes more profitable on their platform. Pete Najarian, you're tracking some of the interesting activity in the options market related to Snap. Yeah, there's been multiple hits, Dom, uh, since the very start of September, as a matter of fact, some huge call buying and just continues. And that's when the stock was back at 23. Now it's actually pushing 25. They're buying all the way up out to November, November 27th, as a matter of fact, being bought. So it's been very, very consistent. They were buying last Wednesday, some very large buyers. Thursday, even more large buyers. Today, even more large buyers. So a lot of activity right now, Dom, saying exactly what this analyst is talking about, which is, hey, this stock has room to the upside, and they are finally showing a lot more 
profitability than they had in the past. So for that reason, I've been in this, I continue to roll, and I'm going to continue to hold on to my calls. But the option activity has certainly been right for a long time in this name. Guy Adami, can I turn to you here? If it's not Snap Inc., is it somebody else in social media? Is there somebody in that industry that you, you tend to favor if it's not Snap? Twitter, without question, Twitter is one of the names. And, you know, kudos to Dan Nathan who's been on that. In terms of Snap, I know Steve Grasso was talking about it very early this year. Uh, and then you go back to May, and I know we had this conversation on air with Melissa. We said there's a very good chance it's going to take out that prior all-time, the prior high of 18 and a half, and and ratchet up into the mid 20s. And here we are. I, I agree. I think the stock goes higher. Listen, Guggenheim is probably late to this dance in terms of the run the stock has had, but I think it prints 30 probably into their earnings release. I believe mid to late October. All right. Funny to hear that not one person decided to bring up Facebook in that discussion in this whole thing. So Twitter and Snap, the focal points right now in our social discussion. Well, coming up on the show, McCormick gearing up to report earnings tomorrow. And traders in the options market are betting on a spicy, spicy hot rally for this stock. We will explain what's happening there. Plus, there's still time to vote in our fast pitch poll. Does Pete Nigerian's pitch on Medtronic check out or strike out? Those results coming up straight ahead. More Fast Money coming up after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out McCormick shares spicing things up today ahead of tomorrow's big earnings release. Over in the options market, traders are betting that there could be a party in the pantry when those results cross the wires. Mike Coe has the action for options action. Mike? Hey, Dom. So, yeah, taking a look at McCormick. This is an interesting one because we don't usually see a tremendous amount of options volume in McCormick, but it did basically pick up considerably today. We saw about 20 times the average daily call volume. Now, right now, the options market is implying a move of about 4.1% when they report earnings. That's in line with the 4% or so that they've averaged over the last eight quarters. The most active options we saw today were the October 210 calls. About 2,000 of those were trading for about $1.35. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to rally through that $210 strike price by at least the $1.35 premium that they paid. That would represent a boost of more than 8% to the stock price, where it closed around $195.20 or so today by October expiration. So obviously there are some who think that earnings are going to provide a positive boost for the stock. All right, Mike Coe, don't go far because we will see you at the top of the hour for more. Now, Options Action, get more content there. Be sure to tune into the full show Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Before we get to our final trades, though, it's time to reveal the results of our fast pitch poll. Is America buying Pete's pitch on Medtronic? The people have spoken, Pete, and the answer here is yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> Dirty dancing music never seems to disappoint people. Anyway, all right, good job there, Pete, for Medtronic. It's time now, boys, for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour to you first. Tim Seymour. Pete, let's go to you next. I'll give you DraftKings. I saw a lot of buying in there today, Dom. I think it's going to go that much higher. All right, really quickly, Steve. Virgin Galactic, time to get on board. Up over 24%. Bye, bye, bye. Guy Adami. Tiffany. All right, let's go. Let's do it for us here. Thanks for watching Fast Money, but don't go anywhere. A special edition of Total Request FM is coming up next. Keep it right here.
All right, a big hearty welcome to the Mad Money fans out there. Jim Cramer is off tonight, but you are in luck. We have a very special bonus hour of Fast Money coming your way. I'm Dominic Chu in for Melissa Lee today, alongside Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Mike Coe. Over the next hour, we are taking your questions. That's right, we are answering them live on air. So tweet at us at CNBC Fast Money. We just might answer you live on the air. So get those tweets coming in there. Let's kick things off with today's market rally. You can see there a lot of green on the screen. Stocks pushing higher to kick off the week. The Dow gaining 410 points, while the tech-heavier Nasdaq jumped more than 1.8%. Also check out that Russell 2000, the small cap index, a big standout today, surging nearly 2.5%. So, Guy, let's kick things off with you. What's your take on today's market action? Does it make you feel as though we're due for more green in the coming days and weeks? Yeah, Dom, and again, thanks for being here for the second hour. It was definitely encouraging. Obviously, the last week has been encouraging. Uh, in so much, obviously, as the volatility index, the VIX has gone from 36 down to 26, which historically has been an encouraging sign. And we've seen the record. We've seen the move in the S&P 500 to back that up. I said it at 5 o'clock. I'll say it now. I'm not a raging bull. I'm not a, I'm not a raging bear. But I do think we're going to test that 33 93 level, which was the prior all-time high. It makes sense for a number of different reasons, not least of which it would be a spot-on 50% retracement of the prior all-time high we made a month or so ago in this recent low. All right, Mike Coe, let's go over to you here. We're talking about some of the action that we're seeing from the trading perspective. How have things shaped up in terms of the market narrative for you, maybe not just in the options market, but overall, do you feel as though things are still constructive given the levels that we're at right now? Well, evaluations obviously get us to a place where it's a little bit challenging. But one of the things I think we need to focus on is, number one, we have that same rule. We should stick with it. We don't fight the Fed. The Fed is obviously keeping some support to the market no matter what we do, regardless of the valuations. And, of course, there's investment alternatives that you have to consider. So valuations are going to be supported by the fact that rates are low everywhere else in a yield-starved environment. So that obviously is supportive, of course. We have had signs that there's going to be some volatility coming up. And we do see that although the VIX, the spot VIX, has declined, the VIX futures still remain relatively elevated. We look at the October VIX futures, November, December, and January, still at 30 or above for all four of those VIX futures contracts. And I think that basically stems from investor concern or speculation that there might be considerable volatility around the election. All right. Considerable volatility is expected. But if it really is all about the Fed, then why does it matter even at all? And maybe Guy, I'll turn to you here, because in the last hour, we heard Tony Dwyer from Canaccord say that it's very liquidity driven. If it really is so liquidity driven, then there should be no volatility heading into this election, right? You would think, right? And it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Don, because the last time we made an all-time high in the S&P 500 back in February, the VIX had a 14 handle. Now, after today's close... We have a 26 handle, so almost double the vol in terms of the VIX move. And yet we have a Fed that's been uh, doing things at, at, at an unprecedented level. So that has to be somewhat concerning. And also just quickly, just to push back a little bit, you know, the Fed opened a window, I think it was a week or so ago. I'm getting my days confused. But if you recall the big down couple days, that came after the Fed basically made a comment that they were looking to or the, the perception was they're looking to pass a baton from monetary side of things to the fiscal side of things. And I think the market got a bit caught off guard by that. So as much as the Fed is clearly in play, 
there's some things around the edges that make you have to wonder just a bit. All right. The wondering is still happening right now, and that's why we're going to dive right into the viewer questions. Our first question comes from a recent college graduate looking for some guidance on the latest market volatility. Hey, everyone. This is Guy from Washington, D.C. My question is about the S&P 500. Since the early crash in September, we've seen a lot of volatility in the market, especially with the S&P 500. Um, with the election coming up and the Tuesday debates, uh, is volatility going to come down at all? Or are we going to see maybe a boost with stimulus or a vaccine play towards the 360 highs we saw uh, around September? Thank you for taking my call. All right. That just begs a question about options and volatility. So, Mike Coe, we'll go to you first. You know a thing or two about volatility and that options market. What's your take? Is the market due for that volatility with the debates and the election coming up? Yeah, I think his question really had two parts. One was really about the levels that you might be targeting for the S&P 500. He was talking about SPY, I think, when he mentioned 360. But really, we're thinking 3,600 on the S&P 500 is sort of the level that he's talking about. And do we think we could reapproach those highs? And I think the answer was given by Guy just a second ago, which is I think that's clearly in play. But with respect to volatility, right now the options market is pricing in considerable volatility. And I just want to give people a little bit to think about here. When you take a look at the October, November, December VIX futures pricing anywhere from 30 to 32 or so, what kind of volatility are we talking about? That would mean that on average, the market is bouncing around about 150 basis points, about one and a half percent per day. And that actually is showing that it's going to persist not just up until the election and not just immediately following the election, because you'll remember in 2016, we saw a big spike in the S&P after that election but actually considerable volatility almost all the way through the inauguration. So I don't think necessarily that uh, the worst is behind us in terms of the volatility that we've seen. We could still have quite a lot of it coming up in the weeks and months ahead. All right. So let's take a look at now what else is happening here. Our next up for our question, we're going to drill into the energy markets with another viewer. Hi, I'm Patty. I have a question for you about Chevron. I have a lot of stock right now, and I'm diversified, but I would really like to get more stock of Chevron, and it's a great company, and I love Chevron. It's good dividends. What do you think? All right, that's a big question here, and, and maybe Guy will turn to you this one for this one first. The oil majors, especially companies like Chevron and Exxon, they could be considered some of those stocks that you want to be in if you want the energy exposure without as much of the kind of volatility that we've seen. Yes, I know that Chevron and Exxon have been hit extremely hard, but are they the right place to be if you do feel as though energy is the place you want to be? That's a tough question, and I hope this works out, and Tim can speak to this as well. Chevron has outperformed Exxon on the way down. I mean, you talk about Chevron, which is going to think from 102 down to current levels of 75, and we're nowhere near the lows we put in back in March, whereas ExxonMobil has actually tested the March lows and seemingly has held. I think out of the two of them, out of the big cap integrated names, I think Chevron is probably the better company, but their headwinds for both are significant, not least of which the ESG investing, which has really been a tremendous headwind for the entire space. Uh, if given the game we play, would you rather? I would rather Chevron. But don't sleep on Exxon here, having traded down to that March low and seemingly bounced. So keep your eyes open. I would be really concerned if you're looking for a benchmark 
If Exxon were to close below 31 and a half, I think you have problems in the entire sector. Hey, hey, Tim Seymour, uh, we've got you on the CNBC Newsline right now. So let's talk a little bit about the big deal that we saw today. It was Devon Energy, WPX. They're getting together. We know that it's not exactly a strength play. It's a consolidation play. But when you look at a company like Chevron, they bought assets. They bought Noble, right? Those assets earlier on this year. Does that then mean that Chevron is in a position of relative strength when it comes to those larger cap oil and gas exploration and production company type names? Well, I think you just nailed it. I mean, relative strength is the story. And for, for Patty in, in North Dakota, who's got a lot of stock, she owns uh, arguably the best integrated oil and gas name, I think, in the world. Um, when you think about how the Chevron management team has at least been forward-looking in the last five years to, to maintain free cash flow, for example, this is a dividend that I think is very much intact. Is it about, you know, it's about 7, 7.2%, not the reason to go out and buy the stock. And a stock that's underperformed the, the S&P by, uh, you know, significant amount over the last, you know, we talk about since May 15th where, uh, you know, banks have been flat or transports are outperformed. A lot of these integrated oil names have underperformed the S&P by 30%. I, I think Chevron is best of breed and, and relative to the peer group, unlike a Devon, uh, they are dealing from strength. All right. I'm looking at my data right now over on CNBC.com. Because of the big drop in Chevron shares, this is a stock that's now lost 39% of its value on a year-to-date basis. It now yields close to 7%. A 7% dividend yield for a mega cap oil and gas mega name out there. Mike Coe, is there anything that you see in the options market or elsewhere that suggests that there's a souring on some of these names because they feel as though those dividend payments, as hefty as they are in terms of yield, are in possible danger because of where oil prices are right now. Yeah, so I I think we have seen that in Exxon. But of course, Exxon, unlike Chevron, actually is probably going to see negative free cash flow for the year. And that's one of the issues when you see dividends that large. And I would encourage people who are screening for investment opportunities not to do so exclusively because you see outsized dividend yields. But to Tim's point, it does seem that in Chevron's case that their dividend is fairly well covered. The other thing is on a valuation basis, they're better run than Exxon, but they're also trading cheaper. The company is probably about six and a half times enterprise value to EBITDA. That's a good full turn cheaper than Exxon is. And they did a very good job basically managing their expenditures earlier this year. That actually poised them for the noble acquisition that you were just alluding to. But at the end of the day, oil prices, and that's what the oil integrateds really are. You can think about them as basically a play on their proven reserves. The fact is that oil prices are going to be driven at the margins. And when demand falls as much as it has done, that obviously is going to keep pressure on oil prices for a relatively extended period. And I expect that to continue. And of course, it's not really a long-term play to get involved with the petroleum business at all. Yeah, I mean, and just to kind of put a little bit more of a point on this, we mentioned that 7% dividend yield for Chevron. I'm also seeing right now what's close to a 10% dividend yield for Exxon at these current prices on a trailing 12-month basis. So certainly something to watch for there in that trade for the energy sector. Well, it's time to take a tweet now. This is from Joshua, and he asks, should I invest in GE for a chance of a rebound? Guy, we will go to you here for this one. What do you think? General Electric, GE, can it come and get back a sliver of that golden age that it had 20, 30 years ago? It's not going to be a golden age stock at all. I think what you're hoping for if you're buying GE here is you hope it gets back to $10 and then say, nice trade and move on to the next thing. 
There are a lot of issues here. They zigged when they should have zagged. You know, they got into businesses at the top. They got out of GE Capital, for example, at the bottom. It's been a rough decade uh, and a decade where a company like Honeywell has been absolutely crushing it. Legacy issues. I mean, there's so many things to mention. With that said, I mean, you know, it's held this sort of $6 level now for quite some time. So maybe it's putting in a long-term bottom. I'm not looking for anything more, quite frankly, than seven and a half, eight. And if you get it up to 10, that's a bonus. But to me, this has sort of been dead money for a while, and I see no compelling reason for it to change anytime soon. All right, Joshua, thank you very much for that tweet in there for that show and that question on GE. We hope you got your answer out of Guy Adami. Well, coming up on the show, shares of Nike on a run this year. So should you just sell it? Just do it? Just sell it? Our traders will dive into that name coming up next. And later on, millennials have put down the avocado toast and are buying and selling stocks in addition. We'll bring you a list of their hottest trades. Stick around. Much more on this bonus edition of Fast Money is coming up after this break. Welcome back to a special edition of Fast Money. We, are all, we all know that retail has really been on the rocks lately, but Nike is one of those names that's making huge strides despite the struggles. The stock of the sportswear giant has soared over the course of the last week on earnings, our next question comes from Jared in Utah, who's weighing what to do next with his Nike investment. Hi, Fast Money team. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to find out. I'm heavy in Nike, and it had a good rally, but it seems to peter out. And I'm just not sure if I should take earnings and trim it or sell it or stick with it. Thanks for your time. All right. So, Tim Seymour, I seem to recall that you have been a trafficker and or owner of Nike shares. So let's talk a little bit about what you think about Nike, even after the run that we've seen post earnings report. Yeah, I, I have trafficked and I am long uh, in the Nike. And, and I, it's a great question because this is a stock that's been on really such a heroic run. You could have made an argument that you wanted to sell into earnings on uh, extraordinary expectations, especially out of the recovery out of their China business and the fact that uh, you know, North America was coming back online. Well, what we heard in this quarter is that not only is China up uh, significantly into mid-double digits, but that you also have North America that came in uh, effectively flat, down very small, and that the business uh, around innovation and, and some of the athleisure trends that they're seeing Frankly, they're crushing it. SGNA was down 11%. Digital sales up 82 in constant currency terms. This was a great quarter. So what's the multiple you want to put on the stock? Um, I, I think around these levels, I can just tell you that after that heroic run, I trimmed about 10% of the position only because I felt like I needed to. I am a long-term investor in this company. They continue to reinvent themselves. And ultimately, trading it you know, at around 30 times is where I think this multiple could be. And at 30 times, this stock can go uh, you know, at least 20 to 30% Mike Co. Ten to seven to ten years ago, I remember covering this stock and having to look at those futures orders all the time. It's not so much about futures orders today; it doesn't matter as much. They don't really report them, but those digital sales, eighty-two percent, like Tim said. I mean, is is this the new thing that we should all be watching with Nike? How much they're selling online and how fast that growth is? You know, look, it's it's always a positive when you have management of a company make a forecast for big things that they're going to be doing with their business and then subsequently actually advance the ball still further. And that's exactly what we've seen them doing in digital. They've definitely moved the targets further out 
because they've seen such impressive growth in those areas. As Tim pointed out, we saw only a year-on-year decline of about 0.6% overall on the revenue side. He did allude to the SGNA, and I think part of that, obviously, is the current conditions that we're finding ourselves in. I would expect to see those SGNA go up just a little bit. But one thing I would point out is that the valuations are definitely towards the upper end of the range that we've seen over the past decade. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, after those blockbuster results that we saw at earnings, how is the stock behaved technically not so great? It seems to be hitting a little bit of the pause button. And that's why I've actually suggested on Options Action that people who hold the stock could think about selling some covered calls against their position here. All right. So, Jared, if you're still listening out in Utah, some covered calls and selling those might be the way that you play Nike shares. Well, gentlemen, we have some breaking news out of Washington, D.C. Let's, let's get straight to our Elon Moy for the details. Elon. Well, Dom, House Democrats are planning to release the details of their new coronavirus relief package tonight. I'm told that the top line number is now at about $2.2 trillion. That's down slightly from the number Democrats had previously floated of $2.4 trillion. All of that is according to a source familiar. Now, this, of course, also comes as the Treasury Secretary and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are also slated to speak over the phone at about 6.30 p.m. Eastern time to discuss whether or not a deal is even possible between the White House and Democrats anymore. I'm told that if it doesn't look like a deal is likely, the Democrats could vote on their new package of coronavirus relief on Thursday before the House officially recesses on Friday. Pelosi would want to make sure that members have a chance to vote on something before they go back to the constituents ahead of the election. But again, House Democrats, I'm told, are planning to release their new coronavirus relief package tonight. And that top line figure is now at $2.2 trillion. Back over to you. All right, Ilan, the negotiations continue. Thank you very much for the latest there on that deadlock in Washington, D.C. with COVID relief. Uh, let's take a look at how this has a market implication. Guy Adami, I will go to you for this one here first. It used to be that trillions we talked about with the Fed balance sheet size. Now it's with fiscal relief packages. There have been multi-trillions already doled out. It's possibly more than that coming up. Is this that added boost, the additional trillions of dollars in addition to Fed trillions of dollars that can keep this market moving higher? Yeah, it clearly doesn't hurt. I mean, trying to game around um, what's going on in Washington, D.C., especially this close to election, I think is difficult. But just playing the game forward, if this were to get through, I think on the margins, it's absolutely bullish for the market. And, you know, quite frankly, that's maybe why we've seen the rally we've seen over the last week, week and a half was sort of in 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 hopes that something like this would get through. So it's clearly not bearish. Let's put it that way. All right. Mike Coe to you here. Is this a situation where we should actively look at the election as a potential catalyst for markets? And how exactly are you seeing traders positioning for it? Well, I think the election could potentially pose a a catalyst for some volatility in the markets. I think seeing some meaningful fiscal action could obviously be supportive of the markets. And that's really what we're looking at is probably the most consumer-oriented quarter of the year that we're entering right now. And obviously, consumers were supported by what we'd previously seen. If we see something strong on the fiscal side in conjunction with obviously very, you know, liberal, loose monetary policy, I think we have something that could support the markets fairly considerably, despite the risk that the election itself might pose. All right, Tim Seymour, how important is the fiscal resolution to COVID-19 aid to the overall market narrative? 
I think for the market over, over the next three to six weeks, it's very important. Remember, markets start rallying when policymakers start scrambling. Um, we, we, we've had this debate on the show. You know, Brian Kelly was one of the guys that early said, I don't think you're going to get it. Um, you know, clearly, the, the markets pulled back was a function of, of overbought conditions and a lot of stuff that was really uh, beyond stratospheric. But some of it was about uh, a need for more fiscal. You had the Fed's pal out there basically uh, clamoring for some type of fiscal policy to complement monetary policy. So, um, look, it's, it's critical, uh, I think, for Democrats to have something to hand to constituents to go back ahead of elections. They're going to give them something. And, and, and I think that was part of the handicapping that those that thought that there would be stimulus were saying. There's no way that they can't come to some agreement, although we've said that about Washington before. I think this is market bullish. Um, I still believe in the, uh, you know, beyond this period, um, this isn't really going to address the labor issues and some of the, uh, I think, the, the structural issues in the economy. But it's politically important and a market that loves liquidity is going to take this as a rallying point. All right. A rallying point for sure there. The trillions coming up from the Fed and Washington, D.C. as well. Coming up next, millennials are charging into the stock market. And this particular stock, yes, one stock, yep, it was a clue, charge. We'll uncover this mystery name and other picks this generation is scooping up. Plus, will the bullish cycle continue for shares of Peloton? Or is there resistance ahead, tightening up that wheel, right? The full trade on that red-hot fitness trend coming up after this quick break. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money. Millennials have been jumping into the market since the lows of March, but what are they buying exactly? Our own Kate Rooney is out on the West Coast. She has the details there. So, Kate, they've got to be going thematic here for some of these, right? There are a couple themes here. Millennials were buying up electric vehicle stocks, SPACs, a big theme we've been talking about, and some of those stay-at-home stocks during the third quarter. This is according to a new study out today from Apex Clearing. Younger investors made what the firm calls aggressive moves into the electric vehicle space. Tesla dethroned Apple as the top stock among younger investors. And Chinese EV stock Neo moved up 34 spots in the list of millennials' top 100 picks. Workhorse also got a boost, moving up 28 spots. Millennials got in on the buzz around SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies. Two electric vehicle SPACs went from unranked to the top 50. The outlier here was Nikola, which still made the list but dropped significantly in the quarter, moving down 40 spots to number 89. Stocks that benefit from the ongoing pandemic were especially popular in Q3. Peloton jumped 41 spots. DocuSign went from being unranked to making the top half of the list. And Teladoc also rising. Major vaccine manufacturers, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna, all made the top 100 as they approach or they begin those phase three trials. Chip stocks NVIDIA and AMD also joined the party, moving up multiple spots across Gen Z, Millennial, and Baby Boomers' top holdings. Across these generations, though, it's still all about big tech. The report, which analyzed more than 1.3 million investment accounts, showed Apple Amazon, Tesla, and Microsoft in the top five for every generation. Don, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Rooney, for that. Let's dig a little deeper into now some of the stocks catching the attention of those younger investors that Kate just mentioned. Our next question comes from a college student. Hey, this is Benjamin from Georgia. Um, I have a question about Peloton. Uh, Peloton. 
I was wondering if we think that the fundamentals of the company can support a breakout of this ascending triangle pattern in the coming weeks. All right, Peton, Peloton, those bikes, high-end. Guy, what's your take? Are you a buyer or a seller hey. of those big, fancy bikes? No, I appreciate the question, Benjamin. I, listen, if you watch Fast Money, you know we've been pretty steadfast in our bullishness in Peloton, and that's paid off rather significantly. I think it actually traded a little north of 100 today, pulled back late. I still think you have to stay with the name. If you read Barron's over the weekend, Barron said competition in the space is actually a good thing for Peloton, given their lead on the technology front, and I would agree with that. You're going to get a little concerned about valuation at a certain point if you're not now, but the trajectory still seems to be higher in this name, so I think you got to stay with it on the long side. All right, so he's long. Guy Adami is there on Peloton. Tim Seymour, what do you think? Is this a stock that's overrun? Has it gone too far to the upside too fast? Well, first of all, Ben, nice job with the dogs over the Razorbacks. Um, I do think you've got a case where the valuation is very difficult to explain here. I, I, I think, you know, this fitness as a service, uh, vertically integrated, these guys are top of the heap. As guys pointed out, the leadership position may make new entrants at least have uh, some difficulty. Ultimately, I do think that this is a, a margin story, and it's just a question of really how far they can take these subscriptions. I think a lot has been priced in, um, but I think if you, hold, if you own the stock, you hold the stock. All right, own it and hold it. There you go for Peloton. Let's keep the viewer questions rolling in. Next up, we've got Jacob, speaking of the dogs, in Georgia. What's going on, Fast Money? This is Jacob from Georgia here in beautiful Athens, Georgia at Sanford Stadium, where this Saturday the dogs will defeat the Auburn Tigers. My question for you guys is about DraftKings. It's a position I've been in for a long time. It's had a really big run-up, so I'm just wondering if it's worth still holding on to or if it's worth trimming the position a little bit. Thanks a lot. All right, DKNG DraftKings. Mike Cole, we'll toss this one to you. What are you thinking here about this particular stock? Well, it was interesting in his question that he talked about holding it for a long time. I guess we're showing our age a little bit if we have to say what is what considered a long time for a stock that hasn't actually been around a long time. You know, this stock is basically going straight up right now. And I think the company itself is in the right space, obviously, And, of course, what you're doing is you're buying the growth story because there isn't much of a story otherwise. And right now the valuation is getting a little bit heady. If you've had this stock and you've obviously seen some great returns on your investment, I think you should probably be thinking about pairing at least some of that position right here. All right, pairing that. uh, Guy Adami, what do we think about DraftKings? Is there a secular tailwind longer term when it comes to online betting and sports gambling? No question about it. Tim has talked about it. We've been talking about this seemingly for the last six months on the show. And one thing we've said on Fast Money is that they could cancel professional sports tomorrow and DraftKings is still a buy because of the secular shift that you just discussed. Now, Mike said there's nothing wrong with taking money off the table. He's 100% right. I mean, trimming this move is there's nothing wrong with taking 10, 15, 20% off. But I think you stay with this in terms of the secular move. And given the fact the headline is such that, you know, a week or two from now, they could announce another Michael Jordan type uh, emissary or whatever ambassador, whatever they're calling Michael Jordan. And that would give the stock another 5% run. So a lot of tailwinds here, a lot to like about DraftKings. What happens if hypothetically you bring in Charles Barkley as another special advisor to the board, right? Whatever, whatever company it is here. Tim Seymour, I'm curious about your thoughts here. We've heard a lot of bullish commentary on DraftKings and elsewhere. I know you guys have done it a lot on this show. Is there something that we should be wary of, though, with regard to the moves that some of these kinds of stocks have already made? Barkley, of course, who went to Auburn. Uh, it's all coming full circle here. I know, right? Um, 
I like DraftKings. I'm long DraftKings. What, what Guy and, and, and Mike are both talking about are these secular trends in online sports betting. So if you, it, it, where you start to throw multiple around this is you start to look forward when state budgets uh, have no choice but to cave into to gambling, much in the way they're going to cave to cannabis and other things that we thought were sins. Um, you have a case where uh, the addressable market is booming and it's going to continue to grow. So you have to value this as a function of what will DraftKings have of the overall addressable market by, say, you know, 2024, 25. That's what analysts are doing. And if you put a 30 times EBITDA target on it, you can throw a dart and you can get to a $70 share price. But the, the valuation is very, very challenging right here uh, for a stock that's up, you know, 450% year to date uh, or since March, I should say. So I think um, I stay long because I stay long the secular trends and I don't see other ways to play it outside of Caesars and a couple of the other uh, casinos. But this is certainly a dominant way in the public markets. Yeah. I mean, and one of the only ways that you can have a pure play in that right now, at least on the kind of larger ish side of things in terms of market cap overall. Thank you guys very much. All right. Still more to come on this extra hour of Fast Money coming up next. Two big transportation names on the move today. Those trades and more, they are coming up ahead. Plus, you've got questions and yes, we've got answers. Keep your tweets coming in. We are going to try to answer them ahead. Stick with us. We will be right back after this commercial break. All right, the countdown is on. This Wednesday, Delivering Alpha, DA, is back for its 10th year. We have another all-star lineup, including Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, Chamath Palyapatiam, Stephen Schwartzman, Mary Erdois, and more. Head over to DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more about this huge event and register as well. Well, let's get back to our viewer questions. We've got a tweet on the transports. One viewer asks... How high can FedEx, UPS, and XPO logistics go? According to your next guest, he says FedEx is headed for 318 bucks a share. Here to make the case, Deutsche Bank analyst Amit Marotra, he just upgraded FedEx to a buy. And I got to say, Amit, uh, this whole idea here of the transportation stocks has been massive as a COVID trend. I know that I get more boxes than I can break down and recycle every day of the week, does that mean that this is a trend that's here to stay? Well, first, thanks for having me on. I think absolutely it's here to stay. Um, by any uh, expert uh, estimates, um, e-commerce demand in the e-commerce market has uh, demand for that e-commerce uh, services is in full forward by at least three years, if not four to five years. Um, FedEx last quarter reported an over 30% increase in their ground volumes to get this 12 million packages per day, close to 800 million packages in the quarter. Um, and that was up, like I said, over 30% year over year. So both FedEx and UPS are seeing incredible pricing opportunities. One key thing is, is that demand is surging and both companies are exhibiting extremely positive capacity discipline. So, um, you know, Economics 101 says when demand goes up, supply comes down, price must go up. And I think that's what's happening. That's the crux of the upgrade for FedEx today. And we've been obviously positive on UPS for several months. And that's also worked out quite well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I was going to say great job, UPS. But just the other side of that, obviously, maybe a little late to the dance in FedEx, which is fine. I mean, I totally understand that. But are you concerned you know, we're talking about a stock in FedEx that's gone from a trough of $89, I think, in March 
to the recent 263 level, which, as you know, happened to be a prior high from about two years ago. Is there a concern that you've seen the run already? Obviously, I know you have a 318 price target, but you know the way these things work. Yeah, I think, um, you know, our, our view is it's better late than never. Um, I think if you, if you look at our, we're about 16% above consensus expectations for the next fiscal year. The crux of the FedEx call and the reason the stock has legs, and we've been quite critical of this company in the past. I think I was on, um, you know, your show a year ago, um, you know, talking about the disappointments of this company when we downgraded it. But the crux of the call is this, is that the free cash flow is going from negative over the last decade to a sustainably positive free cash flow model. And when you have accelerating growth expectations, low interest rates, and accelerating free cash flow from negative to sustainably positive towards 70% free cash flow conversion, the multiple can go a lot higher. I mean, if you look at the multiple charts, FedEx is trading at a dramatic discount to UPS, strong double-digit discount. I think that discount is warranted given the track record of the last decade plus on the free cash flow side. But that's the real opportunity, and that's why you're seeing you know, more le- a more levered company in the form of FedEx, a lower multiple, very low free cash flow, less, less high quality than UPS. And so that h- less quality is, is seeing a, a bigger outperformance as, as the fundamentals of the business turn. Hi, I'm Mitt. You know, that's my co here. One of the questions I have as we go into the last quarter of the year here, some of these companies have struggled as we've seen the holiday shopping season and shipping season come along. And obviously, this is going to be a situation where it's compounded, obviously, by everything else that's going on. Do you anticipate that the capacity constraints you were talking about are going to have some of the logistical bottlenecks that we've seen in the industry in years past? Well, the nice thing about it is, is that the problem with freight transportation is demand is highly seasonal. And the demand, um, the busiest days are the last three months of the year, and the nine months out of the year, it's uh, significantly lower capacity utilization, which leads to pricing and discipline. The nice thing about what UPS and FedEx is doing, are they're implementing very stringent surcharges on surge volumes, and we're actually seeing that start to change chipper behavior. So companies like Walmart, Home Depot, or actually even Amazon Day, for example, they're pre-poning their promotions to smooth out peak. And what that will allow FedEx and UPS to do is better absorb their costs. You know, FedEx is putting in 70,000 seasonal workers. That's up 27% year over year. Um, It'll smooth out some of the lumpiness and be able to better absorb the structural costs associated with all that capacity. So um, we're quite optimistic about peak season, particularly this behavior change we're having on shipper side with respect to pre-poning promotions to smooth out the peak season. Yeah, it's going to be a peak, peak season this time around for sure. Amit Maratra, thank you very much. Over at Deutsche Bank, who covers FedEx and the shipping stocks, we appreciate your views. Have a great night, sir. Thank you. All right. It's a case of planes, trains and automobiles. Let's shift our focus now to the airline side of things with our next viewer question. Fast Money team, got a question for you. I'm Chad Bullsworth from Connecticut. I'm interested in your take in American Airlines in the short term and long term. I'm holding call positions that are up 200 percent. And we learned on Friday that they tapped the five point five billion dollar uh, loan from Treasury. Uh, there's speculation there's an airline stimulus this week. Um, and typically in an environment where stonks only go up, you'd expect a company that's diluted their shares, uh, unable to, to buy back stock and issue dividends, that it would be going down. However, there's a lot of catalysts on the horizon. I'm interested in how you're playing it. Thanks so much. Bye. All right. American Airlines, part of a very controversial and hot industry right now, given the involvement of Washington, D.C., 
and taxpayer money and bailouts. Guy Adami, what's the trade here? Is it American Airlines or is it one of the other ones out there? By the way, Southwest, I think, is the most valuable market cap airline in America at this point. Yeah, I think Tim would agree with this. I think Delta's probably, I'm not saying Delta's the best stock, but I think Delta's the best airline in terms of how they're running it and balance sheets. But, you know, American Airlines, you mentioned you're up 200% in your options. I'd say this, and I'm not saying you have to go out and do this, but if you're up 200% in anything, if you sell half the position, you're in the rest of it for free. That's just math, and it makes a lot of sense, and I think it gives you a lot of flexibility then to stay with the underlying equity. I don't necessarily love American Airlines, but I love what you've done in terms of a trade. And if you were to do that type of um, pairing down, I think it would give you a lot of flexibility over the next couple of months. All right. That's the trade for American Airlines guy. Dami, thank you very much for that. Coming up on this special bonus hour of Fast Money, shares of Virgin Galactic taking off to the moon. Is it time to bet on the new space race, tourism style? That trade coming up ahead. Plus, Coca-Cola falling flat this year, pun intended. Can a rally bubble up, pun intended? Or should you just can this name, pun intended? All that and more when we come back after this. Hello, this is Saul from Toronto. Thank you for taking my question. I would like to know about Virgin Galactic. Uh, purchased their share when they were trading at $26. Since then, it went down to 14 And today, finally, it bounced back, uh, went all the way up to $20. What I would like to know, um, where do you see this stock going? Should I hold on to it or should I buy more to average down? Or what is the forecast? Thank you. All right. Thank you for your question, Saul, in Toronto. You are right. Check out shares of Virgin Galactic rallying more than 25 percent just today alone. Two, two Wall Street firms initiating coverage with this particular name with what else? Buy ratings. Bank of America's Ron Epstein, one of them. He was on Squawk Box this morning. Here's why he's so bullish on the future of space. With Virgin Galactic, yeah, for sure. They're going to launch their... Uh, their commercial business officially open it up for you know commercial service uh, early next year uh, with uh, their first uh, customer will be uh, Sir Richard Branson. Um, we're expecting that either in Q1, Q2 of next year, and then away we go. I mean- so are those shares of Virgin Galactic going to the moon here? Tim Seymour, you're on the news line. SPCE, is it a buy? I'm back. I feel like I've gone to space and come back here. So, so you, you have a case. The bull case here is, first of all, all around just liquidity and markets. And this is the kind of names that, that frankly, without valuation, people don't care about. And the market throws uh, a lot of capital allocation towards um, the the fundamental analysis on this is just that there's a commercial spacecraft opportunity and there's a P2P uh, opportunity. The commercial spacecraft opportunity probably. Um, you know, does a billion or so by 2030, and then according to different analysts, grows at about 60% Kager. These guys are far out, but but again, that's far out in the future. Um, I, I recognize that the excitement around the upgrades on a day like today is something that would have people wanting to chase it, but I'm not going to be one of them. And again, I think this is one of these stocks, and maybe you can make the same argument about DraftKings and other stocks we've talked about tonight that are difficult valuations, but this is one. Um, that I can't chase and I think is a function of a liquidity environment that's not sustainable. All right. So, so Mike Cole, let's bring you in here. 
on the near term, the average trading volume of this particular stock, Virgin Galactic, is about 16 million shares. Today, it traded around 54 million shares in the regular session. A lot of that is because of what's happening in the markets overall, specifically ones that you watch. Is Virgin Galactic one that we should be trying to play on the long side, given a 25 percent run today? Look, I mean, it, this is one of those speculative plays. I mean, there's a couple of ways you could sort of think about this. I mean, one of the ways to think about it is that at a $5 billion enterprise value or thereabouts, which is probably where we are, and you're just going to try to discount what the business is going to be 10 years from now, you could say, well, I mean, if you're going to put your money down, $5 billion is good, it's $4 billion. So I don't know that it's going to make that much of a difference if you're inclined to play the momentum. If the momentum continues, you'll still be a winner. Uh, that said, you know, you are playing for something that is still sometime out in the, in the future. You know, you had a situation here where the stock also did have a meaningful move off of those lows that this viewer was actually talking about. That could actually create some profit taking and that might actually slow down that growth. All right. So watch out for that move after 25 percent upside today. Coming up next, we are talking more about the tweets that you have. Don't go anywhere. Remember, at CNBC Fast Money, send them in. We'll try to answer them live on the air coming up after this. Welcome back to this very special edition of Fast Money. Kramer is off tonight, but he's back tomorrow in a very big way. The CEOs of Thor, Polaris, and McCormick all sitting down with our own Jim Kramer. Be sure to catch an all-new Mad Money tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Well, we've got time for a few more tweets. So here, take a look at this one. True Ben 14 asks, AT&T, sell or hold? Tim, you own it. AT&T, what's your take? Yeah, and this has been a real underperformer in the post-COVID rally for the market. Uh, I think if you look at the wireless business, the uh, overall uh, kind of mercenary environment amongst the major players is, is, is alleviated some of the margin pressure there. And I actually think that you've seen some, some uh, upgrades in their wireless business. Uh, the entertainment group and Warner Media segments are, are a case where, again, depends on how you're valuing some of the parts here. And that's historically one of the ways in which people got uh, kind of excited about AT&T. Um, ultimately, I think the, the, the postpaid phone ads uh, and some of the disconnects are subsiding. Uh, and I do think that the, the core business is very much intact. People worry about the balance sheet, but in an environment where these guys, uh, it's been very accretive to them. So uh, I stay long and, oh, and yeah, a 9% dividend yield. All right. That's a big dividend yield for sure. Mike Coe, how do you feel? Buy, sell or hold AT&T? I'd be a buyer here. I mean, I think, first of all, that dividend has proven to be covered. I, I hold the stock myself. And actually, we're at a level right now where I think that the risk reward is a lot more favorable. So, you know, buy, sell or hold, I'd buy it. All right. There you go. Buyer of AT&T two times around. Our next tweet comes to us from John out on Long Island. He asks, thoughts on Coca-Cola at this level? Down about 9% from here. Strong company that has reorganized recently. Happy with a 3.25% dividend yield while I wait for it to go back up. Do you see it closer to 50 or 60 bucks a share by the end of the year? Guy Adami to you. James Quincy was on. That's the CEO. I think he was on this time last week with Jim Cramer. And he talked about hard, sellers, hard seltzers the growth there. And if you go back to March, I mean, this is a stock that's made a series of higher highs and higher lows. So technically, it's been pretty constructive. I mean, I think you could see this stock continue to rally up to that 59 level where we broke down significantly from the, uh, the winter 
into their earnings release. So, yeah, I think you can stay with KO here for sure. All right, stick with Coca-Cola. Mike Coe, how about you? How do you feel about Coca-Cola? We've got about 30, 40 seconds here for you. Yeah, this one's a grinder, and I think, obviously, the dividend is supportive of it, and the stock has, as Guy was just talking about, been reasonably constructive. So not a growth stock, but probably a safe one. All right, that does it there for Coca-Cola. A couple of good looks there, the buy side at least for Coca-Cola. Well, thank you guys very much for joining us for this very special bonus hour of Fast Money. Remember, tomorrow, Jim Cramer, Mad Money, is back. CEOs galore, some very big views coming up there. And thank you for sticking with us here on Fast Money, where we took your questions. Keep them coming in. Go at CNBC Fast Money on Twitter. We love getting those questions, and we love answering them live on air for you here and keep it right here because our primetime lineup is coming up and Shark Tank is coming up next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 